Support for this episode comes from Awesome Merch. Awesome Merch is the leading supplier of custom merchandise and print to the craft beer industry, with over 700 custom products made in-house. Awesome Merch understands how to take your brewery's branding designs and turn them into a range of merch that you can use as an additional revenue stream, as well as building brand recognition with your fans. That's why Awesome Merchandise has been trusted by more than 100 craft breweries, both big and small, to bring your brand to life on t-shirts, hoodies, headwear, and so much more. Awesome Merch works with the likes of Northern Monk, Beaver Town, Magic Rock, Camden Town, as well as Leeds International Beer Festival and Indie Man Beer Con, to name just a few. To find out more about Awesome Merch, visit awesomemerchandise.com today or email beer at awesomemerchandise.com to speak to one of their friendly teams. Welcome to the Brewer's Journal podcast. I'm Reen Owen. Before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to draw your attention to a new project we at the Brewer's Journal team are doing. For nearly five years now, we've been celebrating the work of brewers across the industry in our magazines and at our events. Now we want to go further and pick out a select few with your help and pause to mark those achievements. We're doing this with the launch of the Brewer's Choice Awards. There are just five awards, one for Best Beer, Best Brewery, New Brewery, New Brewer and a Lifetime Achievement Award. Entry is completely free and we'll present the awards after the Brewers Congress in London on the 28th of November. Entry deadline is the 31st of August, so don't sit around, get on it and get recognised. Go to our website for full details, brewersjournal.info, click on the awards tab. Now let's get on with the show. A lot can happen in 22 years. When Marble Brewery started life as a four and a half barrel plant at the back of a much loved Marble Arch Inn, the UK brewing landscape was markedly different than it is today. Breweries have come and breweries have gone. But in that time, Marble Brewery, under the leadership of director Jan Rogers, has become a mainstay in the ever-changing brewery scene. Beers such as Lagonda, Manchester Bitter and Pint have made indelible marks in the hearts and minds of drinkers, while newer creations from head brewer Joe Ince have taken the brewery in hop-forward and experimental directions. That's not to say he doesn't respect the so-called classic styles either. Joe is a firm advocate of beer styles many modern drinkers are potentially missing, and as a result, he ensures that Marble's output appeals to drinkers of all kinds. Now, six months after they started brewing at their new home in Salford, the business boasts a new brew house, the ability to brew an increasing number of beers, and plans to open an on-site tap room in the foreseeable future. But despite a successful expansion under their belts, Jan and Joe are also acutely aware of the challenges that lie ahead in what is an increasingly competitive market. In this wide-ranging podcast, recorded at the Brewery's Bar at 57 Thomas Street in Manchester's vibrant northern quarter, the duo discusses the moving process, how it financed the expansion, small breweries duty relief, and the road ahead. Make sure to listen out for Daphne, Marble's official brewery dog, from time to time during this episode. Tim Sheehan, editor of the Brewer's Journal, takes it from here. So Jan and Joe, um... I suppose it's seven or so months since you announced that Marble Brewery was leaving the city centre for its new home in Salford. How's 2019 treated you so far? 
You can go first on this one. Oh, that's not fair. I was <laughs> going to say you could. Um, how's it treated us? It's been very hard work, much harder than we expected. Um, and Joe had a baby in June as well, <laughs> which added to the melee. I think we've been brewing since March. Yeah. And there was... A, we had one fantastic thing that Jen, who works with Gravity Systems that put our kit in, came up and did the first three brews with us. And we brewed in quick succession a big and meaty 9.7, a very delicate 5% pale ale, and a 3.5 Gojo session. Like, <laughs> easy session, like a sort of a hybrid between a what have been seen as a northern bitter and a, a dry hop, petite IPA session pale kind of thing. And we got all three of them out. So people bought them and enjoyed them. And that was, for me, massive. I know you were like, this is not going to fail. But for me, it was like, who puts a brewery in and gets their first brew out? So yeah, the (laughs) first brew was a 9.7% West Coast Imperial IPA. Um, As you do. Well, not to go too off topic, but one of the first things I was taught at one of the breweries I worked at in my career when I asked when we were getting a pilot kit was, you're not, get it right first time. And has kind of, for better or worse, has stuck with me a lot for through that. Of course. And we've managed then to do a couple of double brews we'd never done before. Um, we've managed to go around the brewery and tell people to pick everything up and look after it. And we're still working on it. So there's no tap room yet, but a month or so should see us through. There is um, things like we now have liquid gas uh, without fencing. Yeah, blunt. bulk liquid. So we, because of the constraints of where we were previously in a railway arch, we process gas. So we had certain constraints on what equipment we couldn't, couldn't have and things like uh, large size compressors. We couldn't have bulk liquid gas on site. It's very nice now to have liquid nitrogen, liquid CO2 on tap. It helps the lab and brewing as well. And of course, a lot of people listening to this will have either gone through their own site moves or are planning to do so in the future. Looking back, what do you know now that you wish you had done then? Anybody that has an old kit and an old premises and moving it to a new premises, don't forget you've got to shut the old premises down. And if it's a full repairing lease, you've got to give it back in. So one of the things I'm proudest at the moment is we have worked so hard to give what was a naff horrible railway arch that we had made worse over the years in an area that was full of not niceness um we've put that back to being a decent place and i am so proud of that um there's a, a oh yeah add an extra 20 percent to whatever you think it's going to cost to you that would be my other one joe <laughs> add three months and 30 percent to everything you cost because your boss will only add 20. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, everything everything takes three months longer, including yourself. Um, work with people who you like and trust. So if you've gone to a, a fabrication company or a lift and shift or a drainage or whoever you are contracting to do the work, if the person isn't right, the price doesn't matter. Like, well said. Like, it, I cannot stress that enough. And we were so... So I'd like to say it was hard work, but it was also luck in the relationship we developed with the guys from residents who did our flooring, um, HBCL cold stores who did all our hygienic paneling, built our cold store, um, Crowther and Shaw who put the cooling in the cold store for us, and then like Gravity Systems, we couldn't have built that brewery the way I wanted it or to the 
level it's at now and and in terms of how like i am extremely proud of it with without those guys and yeah especially the kit fabrication go go with someone like you like gravity them. and someone who you you have to have a personal relationship with as well can i do this gravity for us they put a spec in for the kit and we accepted that spec for the kit and then they came back and said all these other things that you've got listed down on your business plan can we do them as well because the kit will be right if we do them too so they did and there was lots the of there was also us. lots of back and forth we could have gotten off the shelf kit and i would have got rid of it in two years so there were certain things there's um Things like we changed the internal design of the kettle because I had a very set mind of how I wanted that to work. They took it out and instead of it costing more money, we're like, well, actually, that's less for it work for us. So just put a line through through that on your essentially itemized bill. The mash tun, they recommend rakes. We're only a 25 hectoliter brew house. You don't work for me if you can't dig that size mash. They struck it out. Cool. Don't worry. We'll, we're not putting motors in. We're not putting automated features in. Cross that line off your bill. However, these five really technical, intricate things that you've just asked for that are completely out of spec, yeah, we'll uh, we'll we'll put those in for you. A hybrid of their design and Joe's yeah. design. If you're planning a move or setting up a brewery or an expansion, always work backwards. Always work backwards from the beer leaving the door to the grain coming into the building. So we have we have one delightful one. We let you know in the 12 months to come whether the place where the cask wash is actually works because that's Joe's phenomena. They advised against it where well, you put it in, you got your Every, way. Everyone advised against it, but it's going there. <laughs> well, it's gone there now, hasn't it? So there's bits that we can come back maybe in 12 months and say, look, that worked, or no, I'd never do that again. That we've, oh, We'll put it in the yeah. diaries. And how did the business go about funding this expansion? Um, okay, we're, By, we're not... Uh, not buying a Rolex kit. <laughs> I don't know what that means. You don't worry. Okay, <laughs> might have me dab there. I can tell you very straight how we did it. We don't have a lot of money. We run on a base level. We're not. We're self-financed, if you like. So we sold a leasehold on a premises. So we had three units. We sold one of them, and we also sold our old kit. So that raised us just over two hundred thousand as working capital. We went to a finance company and asked them to finance for the kit and they agreed it and we lasted 12 months so this is my warning and this is when you're saying what would you do differently they give me the budget plan I looked at it and said if everybody hits these targets and everything we have we will be able to pay this back it became very apparent that what we thought we could pay back in five years 360,000 pounds just for the kit we couldn't have matched it so we went back to the bank at that stage and said remortgage and they put up against the Marble Arch. So the Marble Arch was worth quite a lot of money in theory to a bank. They remortgaged us and pulled us out for the rest of it. So we'll have spent about 750 by the time it's done and through. We learnt our lessons through it. Um, I think there's an awful lot of discussion about crowdfunding at the moment, about people getting investment from private equity and things. I can't say we've done right. I can only say we've done our little bit. We're still going to look for 100 grand from a finance somewhere. So we might look at 
I think it's called Funding Circle, where businesses fund each other, seems to be a fairly sensible way to do things at the moment. More importantly, what does the new brewery enable, enable you to do, I suppose, that your previous facility didn't? It enables a happy workforce. I would say it, it was dreadful where we were brewing before. You know, it was people stepping over syringes, people stepping over, people sleeping homeless in the open arch next door, condoms because prostitutes were using the area, fly tipping around. And that's before we get inside. <laughs> I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> like on a, a technical aspect, we, we, can, we can control what's happening a lot more. So... We have a steam fire kit. We're much better in terms of resource of energy. We're not wasting a lot of energy. And to like control the beer, we have much better temperature control. Um, everything has an efficiency of flow. The storage, brewing, everything works in a circle. There's not, before we were having to brew in a boxed room, the tanks were laid out. It's almost like if someone sat down and said, how could I make Joe's life really fucking hard when I build this brewery? Let's do this. That's the old one. <laughs> and now it's like, oh, cool, everything. Mm. So ingredients will come in one side and processed beer will go out an opposite door in a horseshoe, horseshoe shape, which is just just that alone. The amount of time that saves us as a production team is very good. We, yeah, run. we run a very small hard-working well-looked-after production team and that's a an ethos i very much have that we don't need loads of people we need especially on a production background we need very small team that's very well looked after and very highly skilled so the less time they are pushing pallets around the more time we spend making like brewing beer cellaring beer packaging it the better we don't need to be on a pump truck or a fork truck all the time the, obviously, the the actual area of the brewery is much nicer. I can park my car and not have to worry about it, which is really, really nice. I can bring my dog to work. <laughs> it's really, really nice. Um, part of the brewery move, we brought our head office in, which so we're now all in the same building, which is really, really good for... Yeah, I'm not for happy. head office rather than for the brewery. <laughs> for, uh, I, I don't like that I'm held accountable within earshot of people it's not like we were almost operating like an autonomous little sub state and getting away with a lot of stuff and having lots of brewery production fun times and that's calmed down a little bit um but yeah it's really nice technical side on the actual brewing yeah we have much much greater control of stuff we're able to tighten efficiencies a lot i um like me and the other guys we are no longer Brew well, engineers that do a bit of brewing. We're now brewers because I don't spend four hours a day fixing a pump or rebuilding a chilling pipe that's broke or fixing Ten years a pool. was a long time for the kit. The kit yeah. was beautiful. And the kit was designed for cast beer. And it was a really good kit that we had in. But I think the area, the amount of use, we were brewing sort of four or five times a week. It was just out and we were starting to keg and small pack and things yeah. people had to walk from one building to another and forklift around to packaging and stuff those things are now on an outside roads what i'm saying going through the fly tipping and all that the rest of flat. it it was yeah pretty dreadful 
So we have a nice, and we are also going to have a tap room and we think we're going to be able to do brewery tours and bring people in to be able to see what is nice and... Uh, in terms of production volumes, I understand you've got no plans, immediate plans to push through that 5,000 heck We're limit. on about 4,300 for last year. We'll hit 5,000 at some stage. Once it goes to that, it's fully into Joe's hands. I'm not the person that wants to go into the... a big expansion, but yeah, there's, at the moment, it's let's, hey, we're good. We're easy. Beer's getting made. We're having fun. It's nice. The One of the great things about the new kit is that everything that's put in is designed to be plug and play. So it's set out at the moment. I think if we max it and I never went home, we could probably put about six and a half maybe close to seven if we tighten some bits and pieces up the we can do some we could double brew every day if we dropped a couple more tanks in cooling design work packaging is all set up so that's very easy they literally be dropped off we could brew into them the next day in terms of the the rate of install how they ought to fix in the layout if we wanted to go really big we could fit seven or eight more 100 hectoliter tanks, put a whirlpool and a, a pre-run vessel and everything that's in there in terms of heat exchanges, cold liquor tank, hot liquor tank, water use, would, is all ready to to take that kind of pressure. So it's there's no plans to go above 5,000, but if we wanted to or needed <laughs> But he to, set it up so we can go above 5,000. As and when, having gone through two other brewery expansions, it's something that's on a boots on the ground level uh, i'm very aware of what that does to if spdr reform doesn't go through that's another podcast for another time i'm very we are in a position where we could do that very very easily and it wouldn't necessarily mean people are running 16 17 hour days for three months to make that happen we could drop tanks it would all run quite smoothly touch wood I'd rather get a canning line before we do a small bottling line. And I am very much off the thing that I am not that person. I'm not interested in production, production. But I am happy to say I'm getting older, want to relax, want to step through. And probably part of moving was that Joe will step in then. And there's a, you make your own plan after that. Well, there's, a, there's a very happy medium. There's certain bits of kit, toys that I would very much like to have, but you need to be a certain size doing a certain volume to make those worth having Bigger i will, will add a bit again it's somebody else's choice after my thing but my thing is i won't sell to supermarkets so i won't get involved in that so we've done with fullers we sent our beer and they made madariki and that was brilliant we were in waitrose but one it scares me because of the amount of control they have over you and two i think i because I'm from Northern Ireland and it's small scale and we didn't, I had left home a long time. It was the peace dividend before I saw an Asda or a Sainsbury's or anything in Ireland, so it's not part of my culture. And I have been thinking this through. It's not like I'm dead against it. It's just like I like small scale stuff. That, that, so that's somebody else's decision going in order to expand above the 5,000. Somebody has to be prepared to say, come in, yeah. So, yeah. And obviously bigger brewery, uh, more beer, you'd hope. Not so. that much bigger. Um, uh, yeah, brew length expansions, uh, two hectoliter. Fermentation capacity is 75 hectoliter. So not 
the world's smallest expansion. <laughs> we went for being better rather than bigger. Yeah. And we, like people who had stuck through with us and said, believed us that we'd make them a happier place to work. That was part of it. Yes. So, Joe, will the uh, new brewery allow you to make more experimental beer styles? Doesn't it? Doesn't. So, yes, it, it obviously does. But not just me, like the predecessors before me were taking cracks at beers and doing them very successfully that you probably shouldn't have been doing on that kit. So, it, yes, it, it has opened the door for us to do different beers or beers with better efficiency and, and better turnaround. That, but we were also like doing that anyway when we probably shouldn't have been. So it's so it's what you're a... saying, I think, is that James and Matt and people were pushing boats out to where they were in styles previously. Yeah, JK as well. Yeah. People were doing stuff on that kit because they were very, very good at their job. We're going to continue that in an easier fashion. Yeah. 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 Is They'll now good? be repeatable. <laughs> <laughs> when you think like one of the things we did the poor tent of ushers so the um the Edgar Allan Poe stuff and we did the um stuff from the castle of Adolfo and we're putting stuff in sherry bars those beers aren't beers that you would see around a lot and they are definitely not thick and gooey and they are definitely not cloyey in a I don't know how to say this, the low bitterness styles, but to be pushing them out in that brewery and barrel aging them and getting them out were phenomenal. Yeah, yeah? they yeah, it, they were nuanced beers, yeah. like very nuanced. Are breweries doing enough to inform and educate the drinker of the more so-called traditional styles available to them? I think we need to do more at our end. I think that I am saying, right, so the one in my head right now is water I. The beer's watery. I'm like, no, our beer's designed to be low strength, sessionable and drinkable. So pint does not stand up. You know, we have a family relationship with Wonder Beyond. Well, his new ice cream scoop peppermint at 10% or 14% dark stout is not going to be as watery as a pint of pint. But how do I let people who have come in at that end of the market know that beers, the beer spectrum is as big as the food spectrum. So it, and what I want is that, look, you can enjoy Haribo, but you can also enjoy green and blacks. And I'm not saying one of them or either of them are at either end. I'm saying there is a mass spectrum. I think people are starting to talk about bitterness as something that people need educated into. Um, how do I put this, that if you've been, if you suddenly decide you like beer because you've had a 10% NEPA, sorry if I've said that wrong, um, that it may be difficult for you to get a 3.5% bitter beer. I'm starting to learn, so I know how things, I go through life in my little bubble. I said to Joe the other day, because we made a low bitterness, I low bitterness IPA, maybe we should put the IBUs on. And Joe has started to say to me, well, no, IBUs and sweetness won't necessarily match up. There's a whole melee of things out there that maybe some easy science would work with, with customers going through. 
I think it would be so, so horrible to lose a whole generation of drinkers, especially now we're bringing young women into the market, um, that never get the chance to appreciate a really quashable pint, as well as a third of a very sweet, very heavy, thick, gooey beer. It's okay to like what you like. Like, I am absolutely, I get very in close circles with other brewers, very like, these are the BJCP style guidelines. This is how you should name your beer. But that's me with my three friends. That's not like generally outward how I look when I'm making beer or talking in-house about how we sell beer or whatever. I think the word traditional is being bandied around in the wrong way. I am as proud of cast beer made in the UK by anyone who's making it well as any Lambic producer in Belgium is. And I think this is, there is an art in making this that is so, so in tune with making any other beer style that is well-respected in the world. This is this is as difficult to do right as Pilsner is. This is as difficult as Doppelbox or as difficult as Lambic is. And it should be respected in that way. And no one else is going to give a shit unless we do. And that's, now I didn't really start drinking Casper with, with the sort of respect I should have given it until I started, well, until I one left Manchester and then until I started making it on a decent scale. And it took me moving to Yorkshire and working for a Yorkshire brewery to and seeing how into the, the people there were about their bits that I had to, when I came out to Marble, bring that with me. And there was... The brewery I worked at, the direct say magic rock. The <laughs> directors I'm not, and this is way before expansions of this is when we were in the mill and we were knocking out like world class which they still are world class beers, but if you fucked Ringmaster up and Uncle Dave went to the pub and had ten pints on Sunday and it was shit, Monday was not fun. And you fucking make sure the rack that week was bang on. <laughs> and it like and that is the ethos that's true. I the the old boy drinking cask in the pub should have the same respect as someone buying a brand new pastry stout. And as a brewer, we should have that. I think if as brewers we have that, there's no more talk about traditional. There's just great British beer. Well said. Well, well said, said indeed, yeah. With that in mind, how challenging is the UK beer landscape in 2019? And is it becoming as competitive as people say? Uh, yeah, I think it's. I think it is. I think it is super, super competitive. We, and we've, I've not worked for a brewery. Well, I've always been production-based, so I have to now, like, running a brewery, pay attention to that stuff a lot more. But just make it good and it'll sell, right? That's what I've always been told. If you make good beer, it sells itself. Don't worry. And there has been in the last two years, and not to do with more when I speak to other people who have come through brewing sort of with me, say we were in the same year at brewing school essentially and have come and taken more and more senior roles as I have they're a bit like oh we made this beer it's fucking amazing they marketed it wrong or there is a lot more look at who you selling to why you selling how you like I'm a production brewer just I just make it give it to you I got I got my efficiency right like the rest for us it's kind of weird I think but I could be very wrong on this that our Casper sells really really well and no, the core beers sell very, very well. Yeah. We've introduced in the last 18 months a 
couple of other beers. So what I would say is more hot forward, challenging beers, but under 5%, so like a petite IPA, very nicely hopped, but not not Galaxy, not Mosaic, things things like more subtle, like Lemon Drop, Denali-based beers, some Enigma in there. And but all based on like let's we've got a great house yeast strain. We've got I know my way around a malt bill. Let's let's put all of these things in place together with enough respect for each other. So it's not just here is a glass of hops. It's very layered and slightly nuanced. And the those beers I designed them all for keg. Did well, really sold. We've actually put them into like not core and not seasonal production somewhere in the middle. So they're they're brewed on a decent rotation. And a lot of what I got back was, that's really good, but it'd be fucking great on cask. So we put them in the cask, and now they're great beers. And I'm kind of like, I didn't want that to happen, but I can't be annoyed at success. <laughs> Touching upon what you've said, would you agree with John Keeling, the ex-head brewer at Fuller's, who said new beers should be brewer-led rather than marketing-led? <laughs> Uh, yes, but I'll get hit at home. <laughs> like, it's not Come like on. when you go to... I sat in a meeting once where we were talking production level, like... what? Here? No. Right. Where we are talking about, hey, what what should like what should we make? We have a free slot in the schedule. It's, it's a three-week slot, so we can do beer about this starting gravity around this kind of turnaround time. Cool. And I was like, mm, I don't really know because... I'll just like, I'll just bang out a West Coast IPA, like 7.9%, like he- Simcoe heavy. Yeah, director company's like, mm, yeah, what do you think? Like, head of production's like, and I turned to the sales and was like, what What do you think? But not as, I don't want to know what you and your role thinks, but what the biggest beer geek sat around the table, What what do you want? And the response was like, don't ever fuck it. If you are a brewer, don't ever ask sales what to make. You fucking go make shit. They deal with it. But I don't think that works for a modern brewery. And we talk in-house about it a lot now. So I'm very... Don't tell me styles. Like someone I'm told constantly by bar staff or so how to make this. And I'm like, cool, this has taken me my whole working life to learn how to make a beer. Don't just throw three different types of fruit and glitter at me. Because that doesn't... So people could come in and say to us, you will make this hazy beer that is very soft and very sweet. And it won't happen because Joe will never do it. We are more West Coast, more bitter orientated. Not even that. We're just, we're open to all styles, but it's just, why follow a trend? Like, yes, it's it's quick, easy money, but I can just not pint out and... That would be quick. That, <laughs> that is too. I, if you don't follow the market, then you have to be strong enough to stand on your own. So you have to, at the end of the day, if you take something to market that no one wants to buy, no one's going to buy it, you're going to have no money. That That is just basic economics, right? If you are chasing the market because, you know, you think that's going to increase your sales, well, that's about you and the quality of your product. It's... If you just ignore it and just do what you want to do all the time, you've got to be, someone's got to come and buy your shit. Otherwise you go broke. No matter whether you, like, no matter what you make. So there's, there's trends and stuff. There's a happy medium to be balanced. Yeah, We find our way in that. that And I'm not saying it's, the market has never, and I've 
so I was trying to think this through a lot and was thinking about we've we were a five barrel plant in the marble arch when other people were expanding when thornbridge when magic rock when colonel people grew up around us and we stepped we kept at that five barrel side because i didn't have a clue how to expand didn't have any money to expand but we kept doing what we were doing it's almost like that at the moment that i i i really think there are a lot of people who still like the style of beer we're doing and they'll come to the marble arch or another pub it might not be it would be better that if you go into a micro bar that maybe has eight taps and seven of them are all hazy beer and you have one clear more bitter beer on it's still there and i think your problem now is about saying to people actually all of this stuff deserves respect yeah yeah, I think Sorry, for, for me on a <laughs> on a sales point is I don't we're not going to base our brewery behind our single style. I that's not my vision for it or how it works. What I ideally, if you walked into a bar that had a tap list of twenty and you didn't care what style, it wouldn't matter who you saw because you would see marble and you wouldn't even need to look at style because you know their beer is good. So whether it's a fruited goza, a Double IPA, Imperial style, like a mild, what doesn't really matter. I've had 15 beers from those guys, 15 different styles, and they've all been dead on. And that's that's how I'd like to work. Let's the next five years will say whether that's a great business strategy or not. Considering the uh, stresses a lot of small independent breweries are under, what are you as director of Marble most worried about? I think the thing that stands out for me most at the moment is the threat to the small brewers duty relief we i'm very clear we brew under five thousand um there is a set of people out there a pressure group at the moment who are trying to take the duty relief from people who brew between a thousand hectoliters and five thousand hectoliters and spread it out over a much bigger night. My figures are never good. You can go to Steve at Bear Neville, you can go to Bears Manchester and get the figures, but they're spreading that out up to 60,000 hectoliters it's, a year. It's not, it's the it's the brewers just under 60,000 heck a year up to 120,000 heck a year are feeling squeezed. And instead of trying to do battle with the even bigger, the more multinational breweries, they're trying to, take off the smaller breweries to regain their market share what i am very worried about is that there are people that have come up past us and are growing past us and that is there and they're screaming about independence i would love to see them collectively as a community of brewers come in and say look we're going to support you smaller people through we are going to actively say that these impositions shouldn't be made so I'm looking at family brewers brewing above who are trying to protect profits. I'm looking at young hype breweries that are growing way past us for their own reasons. I have, we've worked out, if it was a straight cut, which it wouldn't be, it would be gradual, but my basic maths say we spend about 180,000 a year on duty. If you took that 50% relief away from us, that would be another 180,000. We'd be out of business at that level. I'm asking people who are at, 7,000 to 10,000 hack that are maybe in the sphere of having an influence, a voice in the industry to gather other people around to 
A, say they're against any repeal under 5,000 litres of small brewers' duty relief, and two, to look at SEBA's proposals. I am so, so pleased that there is a new director at SEBA. There are new people coming in under, and there maybe is a chance for us to have an organisation like in America that can support people maybe up to 60,000 heck. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's my thing. I have a very... I don't know, small-scale political thing in this. It's very self-interested for me. But if you have 2,000 breweries in the UK at the moment, not a lot of them are big producers. They need protected. There's, yeah, there's a big difference between making 1,000 hectoliter a year and making 5,000 hectoliter a year. There's a massive difference between 5 and 15. There's a big difference between 15 and 60. 60 to a 120, 120 to 240, like there's got to be a give and take in this. And I think the pressure group who are working to remove small brewers duty relief find it easier to remove the super high number of small brewers than it is to take on bigger multinationals, AB, Molson Coors, Heineken. It's way easy to fuck over... Three, two thousand, three thousand small breweries than it is to fuck with four multinationals. Because at the end of the day, AB InBev makes your regional local family brewer look like a guy in a shed. There's no like, if I was going to court, would I go to court with Heineken or me? I know who I'm. Who I know who I'm going to fuck with. Um, yeah, and the SBDR, the way it's been done, is very fucking sneaky. And like. I don't agree with everything CBA does. Some of their sales side stuff is abhorrent. Like it's just not nice. But they're making moves but now. To the changes that change are coming it. in look super, super positive, and something like an organization that yeah could be very similar to the Brewers Association in the states. It's. I think they've looked maybe at Cameron and been like, "Oh shit, we don't want to do that. We, <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we should stay relevant. Like we should be cool because you know, people are phasing out and and it's coming in." Jam Marble Brewery celebrates 22 years in business in 2019, which is a fantastic achievement. Your own Twitter account features the quote: "There are those that think it's about winning. They've not found out. It's not losing that counts." Surely Marble is winning. I think both what you've said and the quote counter to each other. It's the fact that we don't have to win anything. We just have to not lose. We have to be here. We're in the industry of pleasing people. I'm not about winning awards for us. I'm about people sitting down in a pub and having a drink, a decent beer. Um, I can't... It's the quote was done a little bit tongue in cheek against the amount of competition that is out there at the moment, the amount of comments I now see from people that are snide and tongue in cheek about other people and a little under the radar. My thing is, we've we've been here a long time. I want to still keep doing that. And we're not judged, judged by other people. We are our own thing. We don't lose, it's just we don't have to win for you. A big thank you to Jan Rogers, Joe Ince, Daphne the Dax Hunt Cross and the team at Marble Brewery for their time. 
They've shown the importance of sticking to your principles, staying true to yourself and striving every day to make the best beer possible. Here's to the next 22 years. Looking ahead, we'd like to invite you to the Brewers Lectures in Bristol. Taking place at the waterfront on October the 10th, it promises to be an afternoon of engaging, insightful talks, a wealth of networking opportunities, and of course, fantastic beer. Keep your eyes peeled for more details at lectures.brewersjournal.info. But before then, don't forget your entries into this year's Brewers Choice Awards. The Brewers Journal podcast is a production by Reby Media. I've been your host, Rian Owen. The producer of this episode was Tim Sheehan. Sound editing and mixing by John Young. Our executive producer is Rory Harris and music is from Pond5. For more, go to brewersjournal.info.